Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today we're going to talk about the culture and its adoption of the homosexual lifestyle. And what does the Bible have to say about it? Our first scripture will be Matthew 9, verses 3 through 5. And as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today. And we'll put those in the podcast overview. So, with the culture and the homosexual lifestyle lying before us, let's just dig right in. As to the current events, the movie The Eternals just came out, and already there's some controversy swirling around it because it contains uh, LGBT themes, and that means that for some time now in this culture, the gay community and the lifestyle has been a topic of conversation and debate for some time. The culture we live in with the so many media outlets uh, can lead people to believe that there are far more LGBT people than there really are. My wife likes to watch HGTV, and I have also, uh, being a good husband, set through some of those as well, and you might be convinced that every third person in the country <laughs> was, in fact, gay or some variety of that, if you watch that. Um, what is the reality, and what does the Bible say? Let's start off with a quote. Here is the Gallup poll, the latest one, done in 2020, for the percentage of LGBT people <clears throat> in the USA. And the average is 5.6. That's across the whole spectrum, LGBT. And that's up from 3.5 in 2012 when they started this poll. That's 5.6%? Uh, it's currently 56 and back in 2012, when they started, it was 3.5. Gotcha. So, uh, and then I looked at the Center for Disease Control website, and they've changed it. It used to be a little more um, user-friendly back when I was doing research years ago on this, but I came up with a 5.2 average. So, they all seem to be in the same ballpark. What does the Christian expectation bring about in this manner? Well, we will see. Of course, Scripture condemns this relationship. But curiously, it's not the worst sin, as we will see. Let me just give you a brief testimony of myself as a public school teacher. Uh, worked with a lot of people who were gay, never had any issues, found out that gay people were no different from any other people other than the fact they had a gay orientation. Uh, in my personal life, I've had people close to me who chose that lifestyle and um, had some difficulties with it. As far as my own white understanding... Uh, rejecting that lifestyle, but still being open, I can honestly say that there are a lot of comics out there who are gay comics I find very funny. Ellen DeGeneres, and back in my day, Charles Nelson Riley, who some <laughs> of you might know, I watched the guy on reruns on Match Game. He is still so funny. And Paul Lind as well, uh, people I found very funny. Also the voice of the rat in, uh, in Charlotte's Web. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, as to virtues, some of you may know the um, uh, priest father, uh, Malachi Judge, who in 9-11 uh, pulled a lot of people out of the Twin Towers and died as a result of his rescue efforts, and uh, he confessed to having a gay orientation. So, and of course, it, like anybody else, all of us who are flawed, we can have our moments of heroism, our moments of lucidity, 
regardless of what particular flaw we have in our life. So this is not, as you will see, a presentation to condemn just one kind of sin, but to understand it in the context of Scripture, in the context of the covenant of marriage, in the context of uh, the condemnation of the Scripture, and finally in the confession of the church. So we need to look at Matthew 19, verses 3 through 5, where Jesus is responding to a question from the Pharisees about the nature of divorce. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right. Two genders, male and female, constitutes the marriage covenant. Jesus repeats this all the way back from Genesis, where it is announced. In fact, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then again verses 21 through 25, as Randy reads them. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought to her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right. In Genesis 2.18, I'm going to make him a help me fit for him. If you have the ESV and look at the footnote, you'll see that the word in the Hebrew literally is correspondence, one who corresponds to him, a perfect mirror image. It fits together. And if you read, for instance, the footnotes on the New English translation, the NET Bible, they'll give you an extended uh, word on that Hebrew. Correspondence. Correspondence because as verses 21 through 23 cite, this woman was taken out of him. Now, the Hebrew can be a rib or flesh. We today would say God took some DNA, but it's a good piece of DNA that he takes out of there. And from that, out of the man, he creates the woman. The woe man. The woe man, yeah. <laughs> so she corresponds to him. He corresponds to her. They're both different. And yet together, they're a kind of a oneness to them and their correspondence. Now, let me add my own investigations over the years in this matter, things that just from this verse alone I found interesting. And that is the nature of female impersonators. Back in the day, and I'm talking 1950s and 60s, when I was a young man, uh, that was a natural act to have if you could do it, to be a female impersonator. There was a fella, and some of you may have known him, and you can find him on YouTube. His name is Jim Bailey, who I saw many times. He was a female impersonator. He died in 2015. And he did convincing, convincing recreations of Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, Peggy Lee, Phyllis Diller, and many more. Uh, the Boston Globe and writing about one of his performances. And he was on TV and out in Vegas and all those places. If he were to appear at Madison Square Garden instead of Barbara Streisand, who could possibly tell the difference? Now, I saw the man, and his ability to imitate women was phenomenal, 
absolutely phenomenal. And Judy and Garland, he became very good friends. I mean, all that information is out there to read. It's all very interesting. Here is what I've looked for over the years, a correspondingly woman who impersonates men. I've not come across one yet. No. I have found some, there are few, who will imitate other women, but not men. That tells me that man had the capacity for the female aspect, which God took out of them. But it's not within woman to have that masculine aspect. That's why they must be corresponding. One complements the other. They come together. Interesting. So uh, just one of my personal observations I've, I've made uh, note of over the years and convinces me, among other reasons, that this is a true text and is borne out in that phenomena of why is it men can be female impersonators. And it's mostly, as far as I can tell in my research, the old word transvestite would men who dress up like women and pass for women. It's hard to find corresponding women who can dress. Now, there are some, there are some exceptions there. But by and large, the, the phenomena that we would call the transvestite person is uh, basically a male-oriented um, phenomena. And then, of course, he clings to his wife. He says, you know, he will cling to his wife because why? Uh, because a woman has an, a natural investment in marriage with a child coming. And so they want the, uh, the help of the man. But the man's got to take a covenant. He's got to be instructed. You're the one who leaves this family life. You now come and cling to this woman. Again, making them one flesh and two genders come together. And so, as we will see, the only kind of marriage in the Bible is the heterosexual, the male and the female coming together. So that's the covenant of marriage as we begin this. Then we must look at, as bluntly as it is, the condemnation of Scripture. And there's three things. We want to look at Scripture talking about this before the law, and then during the law it was condemned, and after the law in the gospel era it is still condemned. So first of all, let's go before the law was given. We go back to Genesis and a well-known passage from Genesis 19, 1 through 5. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Yes, euphemism, in order to have sex with them. That is the intent of that as just about anyone who's studied these passages just like adam knew his wife eve mm -hmm. and the context is totally different in the marriage covenant and so this shows up plainly very early on and in a passage that clearly uh, does not recommend this kind of lifestyle we drop down to verses 24 through 25 as randy reads then the lord rained on sodom and gomorrah sulfur and fire from the lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Yes, and we're all familiar with the judgment that God rendered upon that place. And we'll have a little more to talk about that in five or ten minutes. There is a couple of New Testament passages, one's in Jude. Randy's going to read the one from Second Peter 2.6. 
If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So there you have uh, the New Testament take on that incident back in Genesis 19. After Israel comes out of Egypt and the law of God is given and established, we have these passages concerning this matter from Leviticus. Randy's going to read, first of all, Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And that's pretty plain. Then we have Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. There again, it's very clear and straightforward. Here's a passage which indicates not just the homosexual issue, but the whole idea of having sexual relations with saneness, with people who are in the familiar area. Uh, the sin, of course, of homosexuality is the two sexes together, doing what only heterosexual people should do. So, but in this passage of Leviticus, it makes it clear it is all about doing that act with someone who is within a sameness situation with you. So Randy's going to read Leviticus 18, verse 6, which starts it off and lists all the various family members, and then he'll finish with verse just 18 to sum it up. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. And verse 18 says, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Right. And between those two verses is all the people in the family, you know, aunts, uncles, and the unlawful relationships they would have, even though they're heterosexual, because of the sameness involved. And that, of course, is in the extreme when we come to the matter of homosexuality. When we look at the New Testament, and this is the one we're going to look at right now, we'll look at a couple others yet, is in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, and which I have been entrusted. So the gospel has come, and yet those sins, and there are many of them there, and homosexuality is one of them, nonetheless is still condemned, even in the gospel era. It hasn't done away with that. And uh, some people find that offensive, and I will say, yes, it is offensive, but the truth must be stated bluntly. Yeah. So we've looked at the covenant of marriage, two genders, and how they come together and correspond to each other. Obviously, two men do not correspond to each other, <laughs> and two women do not. And then we looked at the condemnation of Scripture, before the law, during the law, and after law. Now let's look at the context and Hill will see that homosexuality is cataloged along with other sins, and we'll explain that. But first, let's get the background. Uh, Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, and you ask what that 
due penalty is, it just goes back to the basic thing in Galatians, as you sow, so shall you reap. It'll be some kind of bad outcome for that eventually, whether it's now or later. Um, then we look down at Romans 1, uh, verses 28 through 32, and listen to this list of sins. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only did them, but gave approval to those who practice them. So, this list applies not just to homosexuality, but to all the things that Randy just read. Mm. They are all sins, along with homosexuality, deserving death, that is, to die, to be judged by God, and to die. And yet, they live. That's, that's the amazing thing. You end that, and it says they, they deserve to die. And you look at that list, you say, well, I think I've done a couple of those things there. Yeah. And I know yeah. people who've done uh, A, B, C, D here, there, and yet we're all still alive. We'll address that in a second. But we read that to point up two things. On the one hand, homosexuality is a unique sin. That is why Paul uses it to show that the world's turned upside down, that this has become a phenomena in the world. It's a unique sin. But he does not, by that, say that it is the worst sin. He goes on to delineate other sins, all of which deserve the punishment of death. Why not? As we go to the very next chapter, we're told why all of us get a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, and many other chances because of the kindness of God. Randy's going to read Romans 2, 1 through 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right. It is the kindness and the patience and the generosity and the forbearance of God that we are not struck dead. It's interesting. You know, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. People think, you know, it, it's going to be God's judgment or God's harshness right. that leads to repentance, but it's actually the back-breaking Kindness. Kindness. That he gives us no matter what. Kindness and patience. Absolutely. So let's read one more from the New Testament. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 10. And this again shows how the homosexual issue is linked with other sins, not made any better, worse, or whatever than the rest of them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, 
nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right. So there you see the homosexual issue is linked with just what we would call garden variety sins, getting drunk all the time and things of that sort, and being greedy, so forth and so on. If we looked at the, the phrase, the homosexual sins that Randy referenced there, uh, in the Greek, if you look at, say, the uh, New English translation and their footnotes, which are very good and copious on the language, they point out that it refers to uh, men who submit to or perform homosexual acts. In the complete Jewish Bible, it says it's those who engage in active or passive homosexuality. And the point is that uh, in the relationship and in the act, one must act upon and be, in that sense, dominant, one must be submissive. Um, so, and that, that's the case of the act itself without getting into details. I think everyone understands what we're talking about. And that's why uh, it's a unique word there in that Greek text, meaning it refers to both the, uh, the person who is uh, dominant and the person who submits. Um, that, and that's the case. And now we know gay couples, if they're men, uh, refer to each other's husbands, and uh, women, lesbians, uh, refer to each other as wives. Um, nonetheless, in the relationship and in the act itself, which constitutes that, uh, it is of nature, just like in heterosexual, somebody must uh, be the dominant and someone must submit. Uh, now, there are objections, and these have come about in recent years, and I'll sum them up for you. It's about cultural distance. Like, that's back in Paul's day, and, and he was referring to, as we will see, this and this and this, and not to legitimate homosexual long-lasting committed relationships. For example, uh, what qualifications such as rape, like we probably were looking at in Genesis 19, uh, the use of boys by older men, uh, which was common in the ancient world among the Romans and the Greeks, obviously that's wrong. So Paul doesn't address committed relationships. He doesn't condemn committed gay relationships, but the exceptions, using children, uh, rape, force, and things of that sort. And yet, in all these passages, same-sex coupling is categorically condemned, period. And if you read Romans 1, remember what Randy read, it's clearly consensual. Consensual. Just look at Romans 1.27. Let me give you a couple of quotes here that I think are very helpful. One is from uh, Norman T. Wright, and I'm a fan of Norman T. I've read some of his, his writings. Uh, he's uh, an Anglican bishop from Durham, England, written some great books on the New Testament, a defense of the New Testament. And here is what he has to say about this phenomenon we are discussing. He says, quote, As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire, of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed today, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relationships between two people of the same gender. Now, this is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever, of course there was plenty of that then, as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. And this is from an interview that he did, which was recorded by the National Catholic Reporter back in May of 2004. So 
we've got that. But here's another one I want to read to you. And this is interesting as well. Uh, this is a word from uh, a fellow by the name of Lewis Crompton. By his own confession, he was gay. And he wrote what others term the groundbreaking book. And it's entitled Homosexuality and Civilization. And the quote I'm reading here is from uh, the 2003 edition, page 114. And it reads like this from uh, Mr. Uh, Crompton. Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage, and he's referring to Romans chapter 1, as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of the same-sex relationships under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. Now, that's from a man who wrote the book they said is groundbreaking on civilization, homosexuality, a man who confesses himself to be gay, Mr. Lewis Crompton. So, what does that bring us to? We've looked at the covenant of marriage, two genders, they correspond. The condemnation of Scripture before the law, during the law, and after the law. The context where it's the sin is listed with other sins and what that means. And now we come to the confession of the church. And this, to me, is as powerful as the other ones we looked at as to the condemnation of this relationship, because it also deals with the Holy Spirit. Up until maybe a few decades ago, uh, universally, the church, from the first century, second century, to 1000 AD, to 1500, to 1800, all churches, whether they were Orthodox, Catholic, classical Protestant, and later on what we call fundamentalism from the 20th century, that which developed into what we call modern evangelicals, and, and the branches off of that, the modern Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, and so forth. Everybody was in 100% agreement that this was a wrong relationship. Absolutely. And so my question is, if now are some churches saying it's okay, why did they change? How can you do that after almost 2,000 years of having that consistency and confessing and believing that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings our unity together in that, like you see, for instance, in the Nicene Creed. And it comes from the culture, and of course the Bible warns about things in the culture seeping into the church. Uh, in my lifetime, I've seen this gay arc. It began in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, with uh, the first time of inclusion of gay people in television. And at that time, it was like, the whole idea was just to be noticed and not to be persecuted. And of course, and we're, we're against persecuting gays. We all know in other countries they are, and sometimes killed. Yeah. And then uh, from that, it went on to, and the scientific community, which it was a sin, and then it's, a, then it's an aberration. And then later on in the 20th century, uh, it became an alternative lifestyle. And then pretty soon it was one where you got to recognize us for what we are. And then pretty soon it was like, if you don't believe that we are what we are, perfectly the same as you, then we're going to get into your face and cause you problems. So there's been this arc that has gone on, and it's uh, reaching fruition uh, as we speak. Now... 
one of the things pointed out by the people who have participated in this arc is the so-called Jesus problem. Why doesn't Jesus mention it if it's such a horrible sin? Mm. Now, I've already explained, Paul points to this sin because it's unique, how it shows people have fallen into idolatry early on in the history of the world, and um, the homosexual relationship pins point the upside-down kind of world we live in. Um, but, of course, obviously, Jesus doesn't. These are what sometimes referred to as the red-letter Jesus people. That is, they believe that whatever Jesus says takes priority over everything else in the Bible because it's Jesus. Uh, the error they make is they think Jesus came primarily to teach. He did not. He came primarily to die for our sins, for the sins of the world. So, And they also miss this point. Homosexuality was not a problem in the community that he came to at that time. It was, he dealt with just basic sins. For example, listen to this list of sins from Mark 7, which is pretty definitive, and clearly... Yes, he doesn't use any of the words he could have that refer to homosexuality. Randy's going to read Mark 7, 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Right. Now, in verse 21, sexual morality would cover homosexuality, but I'll be objective as I can. That's probably referring to fornication and things of that sort, and serial divorce, which the Pharisees loved in the day. Um, however, when we read in the New Testament from Timothy, from uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians about the problem of homosexuality, it's Paul writing to Gentiles. It's not Jesus talking to fellow Jews. And as we just read from Norman T. Wright, as he referenced, and so did Mr. Crumpton, in the ancient world among the Greeks and Romans, homosexuality was rife. It was not that way in the Jewish community, and they beheld it in horror. And yet, Jesus, in a very forthright manner, does make reference to it, as we shall see. Rand is going to read Matthew 10, 11 through 15, and this is where he chooses the 12 apostles and uh, sends them out on their first mission. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Okay, those are amazing words, and we're going back to them because therein lies the whole crux of what we're talking about when we say uh, homosexuality is not the worst sin. Um, Luke 10, where he sends out the 72, he says the same thing. If they don't pay any attention to you, shake the dust off your feet, and it'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah, and it'll be worse for them on that day than it will be for Sodom. Uh, then when he addressed the crowds of his his headquarters in Capernaum, where he spent a lot of time and did a whole lot of miracles. You can read Matthew's, I think, chapters 8 and 9. Uh, a lot of miracles, and that addresses this. And once again, he references Sodom. Randy's going to read Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Yes, astounding words. And I remember the first time that, that settled in on me and it, it hit me. And I began to realize some of the things I already knew from Scripture. It just reinforced my belief in that. And that is the problem of pride. What is the worst sin? Uh, I think Orthodox Christians, and certainly in the writings of C.S. Lewis and other people who study this probably a lot more than me, but I've spent some time on it. Pride, time and time again, is the condemning sin that really gets all of us. Here are some passages. Randy's going to read them. I picked the book of Proverbs because, and these are just a few of them. You can run a whole theme of just the matter of pride and the need not to have pride, but to be humble. Um, so let's take a look at, he's going to read in successive uh, from Proverbs 11, from Proverbs 16, from Proverbs 18, and from Proverbs 29. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And so there you see uh, a plethora of scriptures saying pride is a problem, a haughty spirit, the arrogant look, and what we need is humility. We need to bow down ourselves before the Lord God. Um, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, who was struck down for his pride by God, where he had to eat grass like, yeah. a, like a dog, like a wolf, <laughs> like canthropy, uh, for seven years, as Daniel chapter 4 mentions, when he comes back to his senses, he gives a decree, and he ends that decree with saying that those who walk in pride, he, God Almighty, is able to humble. Hmm. He, that king learned, and that is, the, that is always the overweening sin of governments and politics, is pride, taking the place of God, thinking they know better than anybody else how to run everybody. Um, but not only in Daniel chapter 4, I love Micah 6.8 as one of the primary uh, highlights of the Old Testament and carries on the New Testament when uh, the author says, He has told you, O man, has he not what you ought to do, how you ought to do that which is just and right, how you ought to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Lord God says, Who am I looking for? I look for those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. And Jesus again chimes in with this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 14b. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Absolutely, and that's primary in the New Testament. The primary sin then, and we're looking at the gay movement, and I, especially as I've studied with the leaders, because as I said, when I worked with people who, both women who were lesbians and men who were gay, um, this overweening sense of, of uh, pride in your face thing uh, was not evident to me. But it can rise forth, especially when you have leaders who are constantly uh, parading this, literally. Um, so let's take a look at Ezekiel 16, verse, verses 48 through 50, for a, a take on Sodom and Gomorrah from Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord God, 
Your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Okay, they were haughty and did an abomination, referring to their homosexual issues, but they were haughty. That's the first thing mentioned, that they had passion for other people, that they uh, let the poor and the unfortunate just drift along without any help or assistance from them. Mm. In the uh, contemporary English version, it reads this way. They thought they were better than everyone else, and they did things I hate, so I destroyed them. All right. And yet, and this is key, Matthew eleven twenty three. let us read that again. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Yes, that is astounding. The works that were done in Capernaum, the miracles of Jesus, if they had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until the day of Jesus. Wow. It's an extraordinary statement by Jesus. And what it means is they would have repented. They would have been preserved in their life. Now, there's all kinds of questions here about the sovereignty of God and the free will, but we don't have time to get into yeah. that. But yeah. we must take Jesus at his word that the sin of Capernaum is far worse than anything that Sodom ever did. And the day of judgment, in a manner of speaking, Sodom gets off light, but Capernaum gets crushed on the day of judgment. Capernaum will be judged much more harshly. Why? We go back to Matthew eleven twenty. 20. Randy, read that again. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They didn't repent. They didn't repent. Sodom would have and would still be around in Jesus' day. So, take that to heart, people, and let us make sure we all humble ourselves before the Lord our God. Is there a deliverance? Earlier, Randy read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, of uh, 6, 9 through 10. We're going to have him read it again and add the verse 11 to it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. So the recovery from the Christian standpoint was the expectation is that you come under the authority of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and some might say, well, that's, I know plenty of people that it just doesn't happen with. Well, all the other sins that Randy read, there's plenty of other people that never happened to them either. So there must be a given of ourselves, a repentance unto God and, and trusting to the Lord to change us in the ways in which we need to be changed and to overcome. And of course, all of that would also include encouragement and accountability from people who can be of help to you as well. So, as we finish, just sum up real fast, the whole matter addressed in the Bible is found in the covenant of marriage, which is 
two genders correspond to each other, condemnation of scriptures before, during, and after the law, the context of scripture where it's listed with other sins and seen just as deadly as the sin of itself is, and lastly, the confession of the church, which until recently has always been 100% consistent on the matter. Those are the things that lead me to believe that is indeed a wrong relationship. Next podcast, we're going to take a look at God's purpose for human speech as recorded in Genesis 2 and as highlighted by the LGBT movement. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure that there are questions or comments about it. And we'd love to hear some of those questions and comments from you. Please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment where possible and we'll always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. Until next time, keep looking up.